A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. How you doing? It is David. It is podcast time. You know the drill. The economics, we're trying to make it that little bit more comprehensible, little bit less jargony and hopefully more relevant to your life. I hope you've had a good week. I'm here with your man, Johnny Boy. What's the crack? Very good. It's Davos time, isn't it? You're normally at that. I actually am normally. Well, not normally. I've been a good few times. They debased their currency profoundly many years ago by making me a young global leader. Oh, right. Which, right. Which, That's right. Which the, which the family laugh at. And my young fella said, Dad, you're neither young. You're kind of more parochial yeah. than global. And you couldn't lead yourself out of a shop. But so they debased their currency many years ago. So one of the... So you haven't been invited back. That's I what you're been, trying to well, say. One of the nice things was we were, you know, you, you get to go there for free if you're uh, involved yeah. in this thing, if you're given this award. And that makes a big deal because it actually costs a lot of money. To go to this it does, thing. Jesus, yeah. And it was very strange. I mean, the first one I went to was, I don't know, it was 10, maybe 15 years ago. And it's Davos, as they call it, is of course a... They do. Of course they do. No, it's a very nondescript town in Switzerland. When I say nondescript, it's kind of 1950s architecture. So it's not that little sort of quaint. pretty, quaint yeah, yeah, yeah. Swiss. It's, it's quite different to that. Uh, quite industrial in scale. And the Davos thing is just hilarious. I walked into a bar in one of the hotels. I didn't realize this is the bar where all the head honchos hung out in. And I sat and asked for a drink and I thought there were two quite bulky guys beside me seemed to be overly concerned about what I was doing. And then mm-hmm. I realized the fellow at the far side of the bar was Ehud Barak, the Prime Minister of Israel. Oh, at the really? time, there were two big bulky Mossad dudes. So it was very strange. But the oddest thing, you love this, the whole thing is which parties do you get to go to, right? So Google have a party and, you know, all these, Amazon, Apple and all these people. But they're all there, are they? They're, they're all, all there, all yeah. there. In actual fact, uh, Sergey Brin, the Ooh, he head, he's one of the two guys who founded Google. All right, I should probably at know At their that. party, it was quite free. He was quite this kind of nerdy, really pleasant, really quite humble guy. Yeah. And he was giving out drinks. And you could see he was one of these kind of tech nerds who couldn't really talk to anyone. Yeah. And he didn't know what to do. So I said, I'll have a few of them, sunshine, rag them up there, my man. But actually, before I got to, so Davos is policed by the Swiss army. And they are everywhere, right? Yeah. Because you've got all these big knobs hanging around, you know. And the Swiss are, and I worked for a Swiss bank years ago, they yeah. are an incredibly regimented race. And they really follow orders. 
mm. right? And that's how it works. In fact, I worked for an outfit called UBS many years ago. And I, I realized on joining UBS that you were kind of joining the Swiss army, that it was all based on their military service and what they'd done in the army and their seniority in the bank was all related to their service in the Swiss oh, really? military. Do, yeah, it was really do, strange. Do they have national service then? Absolutely, yeah. Oh, right. Switzerland is the one country that has been neutral for the longest, yeah. but devotes enormous resources into defending its neutrality. So if it is attacked, Switzerland will fight back. With Whereas, Swiss army knives. With Swiss army knives. Everyone has a... Everyone has a they're incredibly militarized country. More now, this is interesting. Mm. Swiss have more guns per head than Americans. Really? That's a, yeah. And it is a serious army and a serious outfit. But again, if you think Switzerland has been neutral for hundreds of years, Switzerland was created. The neutrality of Switzerland was created as a buffer against Catholic Austria. Right. In, yeah, yeah. So the Habsburgs were Catholic. Okay. The Swiss were Calvinist. And the Swiss and Calvin, Calvinist religion based around Geneva, mm. they came together and Switzerland was created as a buffer. But even if you go back, anybody now who's listening who did Latin in the Leaving Cert, okay, <laughs> in the year well, of our Lord, <laughs> 1900 and whatever it was, will remember that the big enemies of Rome were the Helvetii. And the Helvetii were the Swiss tribes. And they were the lads who let your man Hannibal in the back door. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then that expression, crossing the Rubicon, yeah, was actually Hannibal crossing the Rubicon, but he was backed by the Helvetii, the yeah. Swiss tribe. So they've been knocking around for a long time, but their neutrality is really interesting. And in Davos, they speak a language called Rom- Romance. So the three, there's four languages in Switzerland. There's German, there's French, mm. there's Italian. In fact... The busiest bank in UBS's entire global network was the retail deposit bank on the border of Italy called Ticina, which is a tiny little province. Right. Because all the Italians were barreling their money over all the time. Yeah. And then there's this really old language called Romance, which is a kind of half German, half Italian, and the echoes of Latin that was spoken there years ago. So it's a fascinating place. That's amazing. It is a really interesting country, you know. Don't even ask me about Davos, for Christ's sake. But I know, I know. But I'll tell you about Davos. So so the Swiss Army policed this thing, right? So you need a ticket to get into everything. You need to be invited to all these parties. So I'm queuing up and it's freezing cold. Like it's minus 20 odd, you know. And there's a young Swiss Army fella, maybe 18, conscript, Mm. with a big gun. And... He's blocking the door and he's taking people with tickets and his order is to take only the lads with tickets get in. Yeah. So fellas like me are shuffling off, snaffled a ticket, get in. And there's an old geezer beside me and the Swiss dude is looking at him and the old geezer's trying to get in. The Swiss guy's saying, no, sorry, you've no... And he's speaking in Schweizerdeutsch back to him, right? Yeah. And he's... Uh, and he says... Uh, and the old guy gets a bit agitated and I heard a kind of slightly Aussie accent. It's Rupert Murdoch. No way. <laughs> and the young fella had no idea who he was, right? And the really interesting, so the young fella had no idea who he was and he wasn't getting in. <laughs> That's brilliant. And nobody's ever said no to Rupert. So it was like a clash of two cultures, right? The young lad's like, sorry, dude, I don't yeah. give a shite who you are. <laughs> right? down, you're not getting you're in. You're not getting in. Sorry, son, the ladies, come on in. Sorry, you, you're coming in later <laughs> you're on. You're wearing runners, right? Yeah, you're wearing runners. Come back in an hour, right? 
And Rupert, of course, is fuming because he's never been refused entry to anything. <laughs> and it was a beautiful clash of cultures. So and he's like, and do you know who I am? And the dude says, no, I have no idea who you are. And then, of course, he radios this captain because Rupert Murdoch was going mad. And people in the, in the crowd were then realizing, that yeah. is Rupert Murdoch. And the captain comes down and he says, no, sorry, dude, you've no oh. thing. Yeah, exactly. And it was really funny. And then eventually some big... We don't, honcho, we don't read the sun over here. Yeah, some honcho came in. But it was really interesting because you imagine that Rupert Murdoch has never, ever, in those sort of situations, been said, sorry, son, you don't have the right badge. Yeah. And the Swiss guy had never seen this old dude and said... So that's... Uh, yeah, it was funny. Before we begin... I want to just mention that this episode is brought to you thanks to our Patreon supporters. And to help support the content, and perhaps more importantly, to unlock exclusive comment and scenes and footage and episodes, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Well, back to back to here. As we were saying there last week, the election is kicking off with placards coming up everywhere. And, and of course, one of the big hot topics for here and for the election is housing and has been for the last while. But I don't want to, I don't think we should spend too long on Ireland as such. I'd love to put the whole housing issue in perspective, in a global perspective. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think we tend to get far too navel gazing here and we don't realise that in the last 10 or 15 years, Mm. particularly in the last 10 or 15 years, and maybe going back longer than that, Housing has become a massively destabilizing factor in the global economy, particularly the English-speaking world. So I'm talking about America, Australia, Canada, Britain, ourselves, mm. and what I would say proxy British places like Hong Kong, places that were based on originally having British legal systems, yeah. etc. Why, why in the English-speaking system? English-speaking system, it's because of the way we view home ownership. Now, there is... A, and anybody's interested in this, there's been a fantastic deep article written in The Economist magazine this week. It has a really, really in-depth look at global housing. And it makes the point, and the, the, their point is, and I think we should discuss it, that home ownership and the obsession with home ownership has been a massive blunder economically, financially, and socially to the Western world. Mm. And I think this is really interesting. What they make the point is, and we've talked about this before, is that the housing market causes two very destabilizing issues in global economics, in modern economics. Mm. One is it creates the roots and the conditions for boom-bust cycles. So you don't ever get a boom-bust cycle without a housing boom. And in recent years, you don't get deep recessions in Western countries that are not caused by housing booms. So basically, the recession is the wages of sin that is the housing boom that comes before. That's the first thing. And the second thing, so it destabilizes the system, right? It then forces governments to intervene. And then usually what happens after a housing boom is you get austerity. And people who are affected badly by austerity are poorer people. And the reason poorer people are affected by austerity badly, it's very simple, they depend more on the government for their income. And if you depend more on the government for your income, then if the government cuts back fiscal spending to try and balance the books after a housing bust, poorer people pay twice. And then they, they 
central banks introduce quantitative easing and, and stuff. And then that's another thing, and let's yeah. talk about that. So the so the first thing is there have been very few recessions in the last 30 years. In fact, I can't think of one with the exception of currency crises that happened in Argentina and Brazil and Mexico. Mm. But and to a degree in Asia in 97. But those apart, the major, major, major recessions were caused by a housing boom fueled by cheap credit, where people lent too much to one sector, the thing went bust, and the subsequent recession, which are called balance sheet recessions. Mm. And they're very deep recessions because people's balance sheets are broken. Because on the one side of their balance sheet, they have the asset, the house, which has collapsed in value. Yeah. But on the other side of the balance sheet, they have the debt they took out to buy the house, which hasn't course, collapsed. Yeah, yeah. So you're totally squeezed. And that's why these recessions are very deep. And they're totally different to recessions we had in the past. So number one, housing causes booms and busts, which are destabilizing. Number two, because the price of houses has been rising and rising and rising, it split the population between insiders, people who own houses, yeah. and outsiders, people who are renting. Yeah, yeah. And because the outsiders are largely younger people, because younger people don't have the income, what you see is a big generational divide. And it's an unequal divide. So consequently, you get two big, big trends going on. One is the boom bust. The second one is the expansion of inequality. And the third one is the one you've just mentioned. So the central banks react to a crushed balance sheet by reducing interest rates dramatically. Yeah. And the idea then is we will reflate the economy by reflating the balance sheet. That has been destroyed by the bust. But what happens in the bust is that people who owned those houses are forced to sell at distressed prices. Yeah. They sell to the already rich because the people who survived the recession are already rich and they have wealth and they have assets. So then as the economy recovers quite significantly afterwards, the already rich who picked up the assets at the discount become richer still. Because the house prices are going up. And they're exactly, yeah. and yeah. they're yeah. in clover. So what you do is you've got three big things going on. You have boom busts, you have the actual incipient inequality, which is driven by house prices. And then you have the fuel of that inequality, which is the quantitative easing, drives down interest rates, up asset prices. People who are lucky enough to be able to buy assets get much richer. Who buys assets in recessions? Rich people. In fact, one of the great iron laws of economics is that people get really rich in recessions and most people get poor in booms. And the reason right. is because most people experience the boom because they're borrowing money. And what people don't realize is actually when you're borrowing money, you're getting poor. Yeah, Particularly yeah, if you're borrowing on an asset that is liable to fall in value. Yeah. So you've got this is the irrationality of economics. Yeah, it's this 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 is what I, I always say, you know, economics is counterintuitive. And if you ever want to learn economics, and I know there's lots of people listening to the podcast who would like to learn economics, the first thing you've got to think about is that economics is counterintuitive. And actually, on that, we are going to introduce an economics course quite soon, which is basically my old Trinity course. When I say old, it's the one I I did this this last year in 2019, 2020, 2019. But I've always said to my students is that when you think about economics and you say black, think white. When you say big, think small. When people say boom, think bust. Right. And that will keep you uh, solvent. But so let's talk about the housing market. 
The Economist magazine is making the point that these are deeply destabilizing factors, and they stem from a shift in Western societies away from public to private housing, away from renting to home ownership, and all our economic policies have been biased by and jaundiced by this obsession with home ownership. Yeah. So it's interesting. So home ownership comes in after the Second World War. But this is, you're saying that this was primarily in the English-speaking world. So London, Dublin, San Francisco. New York, San Francisco, Toronto, Australia, all the Australian cities. Yeah. Cape Town. So what was going on in, what's going on in Germany, France, well, the Germans, Asia? The Germans continue, over half German people rent their properties. They don't, they don't buy, right? And these are long-term rents, yeah. They're long-term rent rents, so basically, basically I think what happened in Germany after the Second World War, if you can imagine what actually happened in Germany physically, that the entire housing stock was destroyed. Mm. You know, you see those, those, yeah, course, those yeah. images of, of Germany after the Second World War. And they built public housing. And they built lots and lots of public housing. Likewise in Holland, likewise in Denmark, to a lesser degree in France, but they did build them in France. And interestingly, in Britain and America, what you had, particularly in Britain, is you had big, big public housing yeah. initiatives in the 1950s with the big Labour governments in the 1960s. And then you see this tapering off in the 1970s, right? And then Thatcher comes in and changes the policy completely. That's right, yeah. It was the, the right Buy to own, buy. Right to buy. So yeah, yeah. likewise in the United States, what happened in the United States in the 1950s actually is a bulwark against communism. The Americans moved away from social housing in the 50s and 60s. So they gave GIs interest rate, interest-free loans to buy houses because they wanted this emerging middle class this interesting think about what happened in britain after the second world war churchill wins the second world war and he's immediately kicked out for a socialist government because the soldiers who came back from the war said you know what we fought against the nazis we are now imbued with a sense of social justice and a different system so all across europe the communist parties the socialist parties are coming back in big numbers yeah the americans observe this say okay this shouldn't happen here. This won't happen here. So what they do is they they have two pincer movements. One is they try to eradicate communism with their Red Scare and McCarthy and yeah, attacking yeah, Hollywood. Under the beds. All that stuff. But the other thing that is much more pragmatic, they create a home-owning lower middle class by offering them zero interest rate loans in the suburbs. Do you remember Happy Days, the Fonz? I do, yeah. yeah, yeah. Those people. Yeah. Greece. So, and that Those was people. all about the the American dream, where you have your your front lawn and your white picket fence, all that stuff, and saying hi to a neighbor called Fred. Hey, Fred, how are you doing? Yeah, it's like like the Flintstones for modern people, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that was all the American dream. So, this two or three things are, are happening at the, at the same time. One is the need to give Americans a stake in society. Mm. The other one is a bulwark against communism. So, the people who buy their houses, they was always felt that people home ownership would create a more responsible citizen who had a stake in the society and who would vote for the centre grant yeah. or for the centre right. Also, of course, you see huge, uh, back to our environment, huge uh, lobbying from the American automobile industry to create suburbs. Yeah. Because you create suburbs, you need a way to get there. 
create a demand for cars. Yeah. But and it was it was all about the materialism as all well. About materialism. That's when kind of fridges and TVs yeah. took off. And- it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's all about things, yeah. But these yeah, were yeah. huge material changes in people's lives. Yeah. And of course, who benefits absolutely most from creating a society of homeowners? Mortgage providers. Yeah. Because suddenly the person who was renting now has a mortgage. So I was renting to the state. So my tax income went to you, you're the state, and you spent that on building rain, mm. trains. Mm. Now my income goes to the bank. I have a mortgage, so the counterpoint in economics of the home-owning society is the indebted society. And you see a massive expansion of the bank's balance sheets as they lend money to this new thing. So you see this first happening in the States in the 1950s and 60s. And then in the 1970s, it begins to take off properly under Reagan, the late 70s, in the United Kingdom. And all over the English-speaking world, in and around the same time, the state stopped building council houses. In this country, they stopped building council houses in a mass scale in the late 80s, mid-80s. So all the biggest states here were built yeah. uh, in the mid-80s, and then they stopped, right? Yeah. And we would replace this with private ownership, and the market will do its thing. So ever since then... Sorry, can I just ask you then, was the idea of that to give everyone a hoosh up, as it were? The idea was... Get, get it to a certain level and then let the market take off. So if you think about it, up until the 19... In this country, up until the 1970s, there was zero house price inflation for about 150 years. Right. Right? My grandparents rented their house out in Dorky. They lived in Dorky, but it was totally normal for people to rent. Yeah. People didn't buy. It wasn't an obsession, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And uh, so urban Ireland, to the extent that it was urban, you know, uh, never really... Only really rich people owned houses, yeah. right? yeah. And they were a landlord class and, and seen as, well, they as were, that. they were, tend to be the big Georgian houses Yeah, as well. exactly. Yeah. So let's go back. So the idea was in Britain, in Australia, in America, in Canada, as a social bulwark against leftism and the idea that you would have more responsible citizens. But once you commit huge numbers of people to owning their properties, very soon a policy that used to always be about keeping land prices down now becomes about keeping land prices up. 
because right. the people suddenly see my house is my wealth, whereas Germans see their house as a cost. It costs me every month to, to rent, so it's part of my cost. It's like petrol, it's like electricity, yeah. it's like yeah. water, right? But if you create the idea that your house is your wealth, then suddenly you begin the process whereby politicians and lobbyists and people vote for people who tell them we will protect your wealth. So suddenly you get all sorts of things like, for example, low interest rate loans, first-time buyers grants, all sorts of uh, subsidies to interest rate, to reduce the interest rates on loans to houses. So you begin to see policy changing away from people and onto houses. Right. Right? Now, this is real, okay? So if you look in this country or every single Western country, even the ones that haven't gone down this route totally, uh, those that have still got enough people in the housing market as owners, what you see is that residential property ownership is by far and away the most significant wealth that any family has. So once that becomes the case, you protect it. Yeah, of course, Which is totally English natural. man's house is his castle. All that's a, but yeah. just, so yeah. this is totally normal, but see it from the context of policy, yeah. right? Then what happens is it's a very strange thing. So in economics, people will say, when the demand for something goes up, right, what will happen is the supply will respond. So we demand more houses, builders build more houses, and you know what? The prices don't increase so much. Yeah. But that doesn't happen if you've got a significant amount of the population whose wealth is tied up in their house. Because what they want to say is, you know what? I don't want anybody else living around here because my wealth in my house is based on exclusivity. Yeah. Okay, I live in an exclusive place. Yeah. I don't want another big estate beside me, right? I don't want high rises beside me because that undermines my wealth. So suddenly what you see is something really bizarre, John. And this is, we've seen this all over the Western world, when the demand for housing in a city rises, not only does the supply not rise, it actually contracts, right? Because of nimbyism. So people say not in my backyard, or as I call it, bananaism, which is even, it's a superannuated form of nimbyism. It's (laughs) it's not nimbyism, it's not in my backyard, it's build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything, right? That's bananaism, right? You you see it all around Ireland, right? Yeah, yeah, you do. You do. So the supply contracts, right? So therefore, the only way you can ration the demand is for the price to go up. And then something really weird happens. As the price goes up and up and up, the wealth of the people who actually own houses goes up and up and up, and they double down on their efforts to make sure that nobody else gets a piece of the action. So what you see is this nimbyism is having, where it is allowed... Because there's loads yeah. of countries it's not allowed, and we'll talk about them in a minute. Yeah. So for in Russia, it ain't allowed. Right. They just well, say, I fuck well you. Well, imagine that. <laughs> the Russians built loads of houses. They don't have a housing problem, right? In Japan, Tokyo, Yokohama is the biggest conurbation in the world. It's yeah. 30 million people living in an area between Dublin and Port Leash. Think wow. about it. Yeah. Think about what we've built between Dublin and Port Leash. So a few satellite stands and... A few apple green yeah. petrol stations, right? They've built this conurbation. But they were a little bit like Dresden as well. And yeah, they were destroyed. Yeah. In so, actual fact, with the Japs, the Japs destroy their housing stock quite regularly. 
How do you mean? They don't have this obsession with, in Tokyo, the buildings built in the 60s are knocked down and rebuilt regularly, right? Yeah, right? yeah. But they're, they're, in fairness now, I was over there about, Jesus, about 25 years ago. But one thing I did notice is that, like, it's a fascinating city, but it's kind of an ugly city because there's no planning. And there's yeah. no kind of Japanese architecture when it comes to kind of modern buildings and houses and stuff. No, what they've done is the, the Japanese have, and also, for, don't forget, the Japs went through a massive boom bust in the late 80s. Yes. Massive, yeah, massive. Yeah. And they've learned from that. But the, the question comes down to, to what extent do you allow nimbyism to dominate the planning process? So think about what happened, right? We shift to home ownership in a big way for maybe all the right reasons, mm. right? We then see more and more people's wealth tied up in their houses and less and less people's wealth coming from their income as workers. This then causes a shift in policy because we then begin to bias all our policies towards fueling that wealth. Yeah. So suddenly, rising house prices becomes an objective. But if rising house prices becomes an objective, it prompts us. This is the unintended consequences. Another reaction, which is the people who are on the right side of this wealth, yeah. then try to shut down everybody else. And what you get is ridiculous, ridiculous nimbyism, which means that great cities are now, you think of cities like New York, New York is building far less houses now than it ever has done, right? San Francisco, far less houses than ever done, right? Yeah. Why? Because the people who live there are forcing developers to reduce their footprint, to reduce this, to reduce that. And what you're seeing, therefore, is in the cities, the battle between the renter and the owner has reached epidemic phases where the renter is being forced out. And it's actually choking all these fantastic cities. But why doesn't that kind of happen in places like Singapore? Interesting question. The reason is, and again, I know it's really funny because everyone says, oh, Singapore is the free market and la, 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 la. The Singapore state owns all the land in Singapore. There is no private land. Right, right. So it identifies demand is coming. We need to build 50,000 new houses, sell that parcel of land. And then they get the private sector to build but the state owns the land. Right. So okay. there's never any of this land hoarding. And I don't want to go on about land hoarding again in yeah. this podcast because we've done it before, yeah. right? But it is a serious, serious thing. If the incentive is always to hoard land, to make more money next year, to validate this year's prices, what you tend to get is this crazy situation where supply does not respond to demand prices rise. Then there's a fifth element in everything, which is that the state is not building public houses. The state's not building council houses. Yeah. So once the state doesn't build public houses, the whole burden of accommodating people is on the private sector, but the private sector is being destroyed by nimbyism. Yeah. And all the while, what you're seeing is people feeling more and more isolated less and less involved in the country, have a less and less stake. And of course, they're voting populist. Yeah, I was going to say that the natural conclusion to that is as the outsiders to the rise of populism. Exactly. So interestingly, a policy that started 50 years ago to stop radical 
communism has actually ended up delivering radical populism. So it's a ticking time bomb yeah. all around the world. And what has to be done about it is you've got to look at the countries that don't have house price problems. So an interesting country, John, that doesn't have a house price problem, even though it's the richest country in Europe, is Switzerland. Go on. The Swiss continue to build at a much higher level per hundred of population than we do. Right. right. And the reason is the following. Sorry, they're building public houses. They're building houses. Okay. Right? They're building affordable houses for average people. Now, why are, what are they doing? And some are public, some are private, some are mm. cooperative, some are... Switzerland is operated by a very interesting thing called direct democracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We spoke about that before. Yeah, so one of the most interesting it things... It works really well. It works really well. One of the most interesting things in Switzerland is nobody knows who the prime minister's name is. <laughs> then you ask, I have no idea. But they've, they've referenda I know who, every yeah, second week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've referenda on all sorts of things, right? Uh, you, you know who Merkel is, you know, you know, you know, <laughs> you know, the president Macron, you know, fucking Boris Johnson, you know, all these people, Salvini in, in Italy, yeah, you know, yeah. all these big politicians. Nobody knows the prime minister of Switzerland because he or she, I don't even know it's a he or she, doesn't matter. <laughs> they don't matter, yeah. right? And the reason they don't matter is they've devolved all the power to the local cantons. So consequently, if you need something done in your locality, it's your local politician and the local civil service and the administration are most at fault and therefore respond most quickly. They also raise taxes locally, right? So, for example, our wealthy friend, Mr. Murphy, went to live in Switzerland. He negotiated his tax bill. I was like, man, that's fucking crazy. Yeah, he sat down and said, well, I'm a rich guy. I want to pay this much. And they said, oh, okay, fine. We take a little bit here. And that's how you do it, right? If you come as an outsider. Yeah. But the upside of that is really interesting also because they have a property tax and a significant property tax the locality gets the money from the tax so they have an incentive to fast track the development and the zoning and the planning because right. they're getting the money directly whereas here there's no connection between whether or not in Dunleary for example we rezone a huge amount of land that money doesn't go to the Dunleary corporation yeah so they're much less likely to fast-track the zoning because they have the, no incentive. But on the flip side of that, though, it's, it must be much easier to do that in a small country like Switzerland. Well, we're that a, has we're prob- a smaller country. Yeah, no, but, but our distribution of resources and people, like there's a high concentration in Dublin, huge swathes of the land is just fairly empty farmland. You, you can argue, John, you're absolutely right, but you can argue that centralization of everything in Ireland is a function of not having direct democracy. So what we're seeing right now, I call spectator democracy yeah. in Ireland, right? So every four or five years, we go into the gladiatorial electoral campaign and they all come and they start smiling at us and promising us this, that and the other. And basically, we go into the booth down the road in Convent Road mm-hmm. and we got to give the thumbs up or the thumbs down to yeah. the fella or the girl, right? Yeah. And then we go off and we don't think, about, yeah. and we don't think about democracy again for another four or five years. And it's mediated by the media and all the charade there. Whereas the Swiss have this direct democracy. So, you know, every canton has the right, if they raise a certain amount of signatures, to bring those, I think it's 100,000, to the parliament, and they have to have a referendum. So democracy is active. It's a participatory but democracy. Isn't it funny, though? Because that sounds remarkably like the way 
Mitch McConnell and a lot of the American Republicans talk about small central government. It is, but they believe in small central government and an incredibly powerful president. Whereas the Swiss believe in small central government and incredibly inconsequential politicians. Yeah. So what Mitch McConnell doesn't get is that you want small government, Mitch, well, then you've got to have a small Senate. Then you've got to have a small Capitol Hill. And then Trump has got to be, well, apparently he's small, very small hands. So (laughs) you know what they say? Anyway, right? So let's go back to the housing. So you've got got isolated examples of Singapore, Russia, Germany, Mm. Switzerland, Japan, that have learned lessons and the supply response. I think if you look at the way in which our country is being run, the way in which Britain has been run, the United States, etc., all the countries that we're very familiar with, at the core of the inequality and the fragility of the financial system and the boom busts and the fact that the economy goes two gears forward, goes one gear into reverse, and that poor people suffer repeatedly because of the fallout, is this obsession with homeowning. And we started talking about ecologists a while ago, right? Yeah. The reason we have an obsession with homeowning is that economists who have a very narrow gauge view of the world were given primacy in policy. And rather than look at the environmental, emotion, social costs of this, they just looked at the pounds, shilling and pence cost of it. If one group is getting wealthy and that group is sufficiently big, well, then we should be okay. But they didn't realize that the group that's getting poor are the young and the already poor. And the reason the already poor are getting it is that, think about what's happening. If you're not building enough apartments, the people who used to rent expensive apartments are now having to rent apartments that used to be lived in by poorer people. But the rents are going up, so the poorer people have to move out. Yeah. So the rich get shunted in to apartments that used to be lived in by poor people, and the poor get shunted on where? To the homeless list, because there are no apartments. Yeah. So the social costs of this are kids in hotels, being brought up in hotels around the country, homeless kids, families breaking down, etc. And the root cause of it is an obsession with home ownership. And I think over the next 10 or 15 years, you will see a massive move all over the West against home ownership. Because even you think about the millennial generation, yeah, they're not like us. You know, they want to be asset poor. Lots and lots, they don't want a car. They're not buying cars. They're not buying flats. They're saying I'll rent. And I think what we're seeing is we're on the cusp of a massive social change that home ownership, which was regarded by us and our parents as the very essential lubricant of being a citizen, an engaged citizen, is going to actually turn on its head. And people will now say, you know what? I don't want that anymore. And if they don't, that's the good way of looking at it. If they don't, they will vote for radical, radical policies to get back what has been robbed from them through our obsession with expensive houses. As an economist, it's all your fault then. Absolutely. (laughs) The whole thing is my fault. 
I want to just mention that on the 15th of March, our live show in the Olympia, no less. Those tickets Woo. will be on sale now. It's on Ticketmaster, is it? Yep. It's on Ticketmaster. And uh, that'll be myself and John on the Olympia stage. It's a really nice night because it's a Sunday before Paddy's night. So nobody's working Monday. So that's the 15th of March in the Olympia in the centre of town. 